Humanity First podcast. I am Chris Ryan along with Peter Evers and a lot to discuss here on the podcast this week. Of course, we have a president-elect in Joe Biden, a vice president-elect in Kamala Harris, but still a lot of individuals that feel that uh, this transition of power is not a good one. Uh, is a problem uh, for our country. There's individuals who are contesting the votes, the results, and namely, you know, the president of the United States. And it's fascinating the effect that politics has on, you know, the collective psyche of many. And, you know, for many individuals, they have spent the last, you know, four years in a state of heightened alert that something bad was going to happen to them or their families or to our country as a result of Donald Trump being president. Meanwhile, for 30 to 40 percent of the population, there was a relative ease uh, with which they lived their lives because they didn't feel that their stake in America was challenged the same way as it's going to be under Joe Biden. And I'm curious as we welcome in Peter Evers, the president and CEO of BAMSI, you know, what do you feel is going to be the collective mental health um, in this administration where Joe Biden is seeking to bring people together? He is saying to Trump voters, let's give each other a fair shake. You give me a fair shake. I give you a fair shake. And, you know, it's all things that we expect from a president. We expect a president to unite people. But are people at a place that where they can listen to the other side at this point? I don't know. I mean, I worry a great deal about that, uh, Chris. And it was funny the other day, um, we were sort of talking uh, on Saturday night, and I said something rather silly, actually. I said, I don't think there's ever been a time when this country has been more divided. And my wife said, you mean like the Civil War? (laughs) And I Good. said, fair enough. <laughs> but there, but it is true. It made me think a little bit about the strength of a democracy uh, and the strength of a nation. And, you know, there are 300 plus million people coming to terms with a, a peaceful transition of power. And that happens every four or eight years. And so it's not like we are really in uncharted territory here. The the lines have been redrawn by this president, and whether you agree with that or not, that's absolutely true. I don't think politics will return to normal within the next generation or so because he's created a movement which is empowered. Um, and so I think it's going to be very difficult for President Biden to reclaim uh, the minds of some of those people in terms of what he's uh, and Kamala Harris are trying to do. But it'll be gradual and it'll fade. And I think there'll, there'll be a gradual resumption of um, diplomacy, if you like, internal di- diplomacy. And, and we are all responsible for that, Chris. We're all responsible to have conversations with people um, who don't agree with, with what we see. I was uh, listening to a Trump supporter speaking about how uh, the Democrats are uh, socialist communists and all they're going to do is get rid of all of the individual rights of the people in this country. That is a pretty extreme version of what someone perceives as a, a, a middle-of-the-road political party coming into power. That's the work that we have to do. We have to pull each other together. We have to come and find places where we can agree in terms of improving this country, and I think it's doable. Yeah, and so often you know, we've heard extremes on both sides and things that just could not 
you know, take place um, in our country um, being espoused as the fear that they have about the opposition. And um, a lot of the uh, rhetoric out of the out of the president himself has been outright lies. Um, there is no widespread voter fraud or conspiracy theory to uh, defeat President Trump. Uh, he is saying to count the votes in states where he is behind and not to count the votes in states where he was ahead but was, you know, um, looking like if the, he might get caught up to, i.e. Arizona and Pennsylvania. Um, people want the, the, the truth. They want to be leveled with. And there is such a trust deficit that is uh, in our country at this point in time that, frankly, both sides have to you know, do better at. The reason that we are here is that um, you know, many individuals have been lied to. And are the, are the lies worse by one side than the other side? Depends who you ask. Depends who you ask. <laughs> but, um, you know, President Obama said, if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. And people remember that. Mm -hmm. And so when there is a little bit of trust that erodes, it opens the door a little bit for other people to move in and try to sell you, you know, their bit of goods. And um, Springsteen has a song on his new album called Rainmaker. And, um, you know, it's about the Midwest and there's no rain coming in and the crops are drying up and there's somebody that you know, promises that they have a healing power. They're going to come in. They're going to make it rain. And, you know, that is what has been sold to people on both sides, that individuals can do things they just can't possibly do. And, uh, you know, they're, they're making the argument that, you know, they're going to bring Medicare for all or aspects of socialism, which they can't do. Um, you know, whether it's Bernie Sanders on the left or Donald Trump on the right, that Trump is going to build a wall and Mexico is going to pay for it. A lie. Um, that Bernie Sanders is going to come in and everybody's going to have free college and everybody's going to have... To free, have free health care. <laughs> a lie. <laughs> I mean, so there's varying degrees of what it is, but the way that our country is set up, um, you know, you have to have a, a overwhelming amount of support for something like a Medicare for all, which even if Bernie Sanders was president, was unlikely to pass the House and the Senate, particularly now that the Senate is either going to be split or is going to um, have Republican control. So even if Joe Biden was in favor of Medicare for all, which he is not, um, it's not going to happen because of the way that it's built up. So if you run on a campaign saying you're going to do something that you don't know if you can do, you're, you're going to let people down. They're going to lose trust in you. And that's the problem that our country has where we are more worried about appealing to get people to believe in something than actually being able to do it and that's a big problem yeah i think so and, and you know we are it's not like this happened in a vacuum i think we're looking at 50 or 100 years of this kind of behavior i think you know if you really want to point to it vietnam I think that that's where things kind of started yeah. in this country, where the trust deficit began, where government wasn't honest with um, the American people and individuals were drafted and, and lost their lives. And for what? And there's been a steady erosion of trust since then. So I think that if you want to point to a specific time, maybe it's when Kennedy was shot, 
and we yeah. started to lo lose yeah. our innocence a little bit there, and then we started to lose trust in institutions after that. There were all the conspiracy theories about was it an inside job, et cetera. So maybe when Kennedy was shot, maybe when um, Vietnam happened, a difference I would say between you know the the Civil War and now is that you weren't necessarily married to the opposition then. Like, in now in these environments, you may find yourself married to a Trump yeah. supporter. You didn't know it, but then all of a sudden this person started to like Donald Trump. You're like, who is this person that I'm here with? Yeah. And, you know, there wasn't that wasn't a part of the Civil War. It was generally a regional basis. I'm sure there were, you know, different belief systems amongst different individuals. But um, the fact that the Trump supporter is your dad or <laughs> is your, yeah. you know, is the person across the street, that's a difference because it's all in around us in our in our lives at this point. So two points there. One on you know, this, it being not worse than the Civil War, obviously, because we're not at war um, in a, you know, but we are in a situation where we're, from a mental standpoint, it's, it's questioning yeah. everyone and wondering. Yeah, and I think, you know, if you if you were to say what of the what are the things that have happened over those years and i think you're right about vietnam and the and the um, assassinations but there's been a vilification of the enemy so so you cannot have political discourse nowadays you can but but political discourse is different because ev and i think it's a trust issue if i say um you know that person is a fraud that person is a liar and then I say, and the other person says, well, yes, that person's a liar. There's this eroding of trust that happens. And we go to our corners and we say, well, I know that that guy's saying that that person is a liar, but he's my liar. And I'm, and I'm going to stick behind him. Right. And I think that I think one thing that Trump did was he stripped away any of the normal um, of the norms in politics. Um, he was this bundle of um, anger uh, and retribution and uh, perhaps how many many people feel on either side of the aisle but he was it he was just there saying what exactly was on his mind and that's what appealed to those farmers who were looking for the for rain in the midwest it was somebody who could come and say i'm not a regular politician and i am going to fix this for you and and remember people have been saying i'm going to fix this for since politics began it, right it wasn't a new thing but it just amplified differences and vilified the, the, the people on the other side of the aisle. And the truth is that individuals have to help themselves and that there is not going to be somebody that is going to come along and make everything you know, work out for them. Certainly conditions can be created and um, you know, things can get better or worse based upon who the president of the United States is for individuals. But you know, if you want uh, there to be you know changes at the local level or in your life, you know those things fall on on you as an individual. And you know that's a there are some campaigns that uh, that'll campaign on that. Some politicians will campaign on that, and uh, that's not something that's overly you know uh, appealing to people. They <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? but, but but you know it's interesting that, that when you look at. Well, and you know, I, probably it's no surprise to you, Chris, that I'm more of a Democrat than a Republican. I find that very difficult. No, I know it would be extraordinary, wouldn't it? Um, but I do think that, that there was a huge difference between the parties here. And one was 
one party wanted people to vote. They wanted more and more people to right. vote. And the other party didn't. And that, and that strikes me as really undemocratic if you start removing, um, you know, booths in polling stations and you you continue to make it difficult for people to vote. And It also that- indicates that you're a defeated ideology. You know, it, for me, like, if I am in a situation, I want to make the argument to as many people as possible about the way that I uh, believe that the country should be run. And to try to win people over based upon that. And if I lose, I lose. My, I lost. Um, but instead, you know, ha- trying to figure out how not to get ballots, people to have to freak out because people are being sent ballots. Oh, they could vote. <laughs> yeah. Yes, they, could, exactly. they could vote. And, and, and then when you engage in tactics, and of course, you know, and I'm going to say the Republicans and Democrats have gerrymandered regions. Um, for a hundred years, yeah. but the Republicans perfected it in 2010. I mean, they did a really good job of rearranging districts that marginalize communities of color, low-income uh, uh, communities, and that, to me, is that is a defeat of your ideology, as you said. If you want to change the rules so that less of so that less of the opposition can vote for you, I believe you've lost, and and we're losing democracy like that. And maybe that's an overstatement, but we really need to. And if I think if if a, if a political party can solve the problem of in, of getting more people to vote, and they perhaps perhaps Trump did more than anyone else to, um, in terms of getting people to vote this time, then they're going to solve that problem. More people who are, in, uh, who are invested in the political system are going to be more successful, I believe, and that's what we need to do. And here's a key part, and we're, gonna, we're way in the weeds on this, <laughs> but um, and we're going to get to our panel here in a second um, and for a really good discussion about things taking place at, uh, at BAMSI and Upwards Mobility in the organization. But, you know, it's not like when people say, well, the, the ballots were being sent out to, to everyone and people didn't even request the ballots. They're being sent out. You know, the ballots were going out to Republicans and Democrats. Everyone, everyone was being given the chance to uh, to vote via mail. Not just one party. Everyone. It's not like you know the Secretary of State's office in uh, in, in Georgia is sending out mail in ballots, and they go, "Well, we're just going to send these out to the Democrats. The Republicans aren't going to get any." <laughs> I mean, that is, and that's how the process worked. It's not like they were being exclusionary in who. The ballots were being sent out to the opportunity was equal for individuals to vote via mail in these states. So I hear over and over again from from Republicans and Trump supporters, "Well, it's the mail-in ballots. You gotta you gotta fix that. You can't send the mail ballots. A if you if you vote twice, it's a felony. Yeah, it's a felony. Yeah. So if you if people are willing to take that chance, and yeah. um, um, that's fine. Yeah, find me somebody who did. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> and um." You know, if you get a ballot via mail and the person is deceased, it is the job of um, – now, remember when my mom died. My dad was calling all around to all sorts of people across the state of New York telling them that my mom had passed on and having to send def- death certificate in circumstances. So that's – kind of on people if the if the if the if the, if the if people are voting who are dead that is also a problem um that needs to get taken care of by uh individuals so that's again getting back to the trust piece i mean you have to you have to trust people and um in order for our country to work we have to trust one another and to trust the intent of the people 
uh, around us. And speaking of which, I am I'm curious as to what you think the, the intention is of this uh, new administration in regards to uh, helping uh, individuals who are in the margins, uh, the most vulnerable populations. And do you think that there's going to be you know, significant differences for that population as a result of the election of of Joe Biden and Kamala yeah, Harris. Yeah, I mean that's that, that is something that keeps me up at night. So I think in theory, yes, but there are so many practical things that are going to happen between now and the next four years that will answer that. And I think back, Chris, to the Deval Patrick administration in Massachusetts. Um, I was working in state government, and it was it, there. It, there was so much excitement back then. You know, we the first African American. Um, governor who spoke the language of uh, the oppressed, um, and it, it didn't happen. And why didn't it happen? Well, it didn't happen because there was a massive recession in 2009, and there were nine C cuts all over, which meant that the, the public spending had to be reined in. And that pretty much did a number on any of the progressive thinking about for people with disabilities for a couple of years. So I worry that that might happen. I do think that there will be many more opportunities to get uh, uh, 1115 waivers. That means money from Medicaid to do different things experimentally. The uh, Seema Werner from, uh, from CMS Medicaid had just stopped that completely under the Trump administration. And they were rolling back all sorts of, um, uh, of, of grants and awards. So hopefully that will turn around with a new administration that's much more interested into in innovative um, uh, work for people like us. And I'm optimistic about that. But in the background, there's, are we able, going to be able to do it? You know, Mitch McConnell said very proudly um, eight years ago um, that his intent was to block everything that the new president wanted to do. I assume that he'll be in that same position. I don't, I mean, he may not be actually because they, they might flip Georgia, but if they do, things are going to get slowed down a great deal. So I think I, I wouldn't want to be overly optimistic and say it's all going to be rosy from now on. It's going to be really bumpy, as you said before. Yeah, it's going to be interesting you know, to see what happens, and we'll, we'll talk about that obviously in the future. But I do want to get to our panel. We're going to turn things over to Peter, who is going to introduce uh, the members of our panel of Bamsey workers today. Hi, everybody. And uh, welcome to what I think is going to be a fascinating conversation. Uh, you know, when we talk about BAMSI and we talk about what we want BAMSI to be, the thing that I think about the most is how do we create an organization, first of all, that is exciting, that people want to come to, but more importantly, in some ways, an organization that people want to stay at. And the way that we do that, I believe, is investing in a workforce that has the idea of doing good in mind. And when we interview people, when they come into the organization, throughout the entire time that they're with BAMSI, we're constantly thinking, how can we make our workforce more dedicated to BAMSI and, and BAMSI being de dedicated to them? And one of the, th one of the ways that we've done that um, in the past is to invest in people and allow people to see a career structure, a way in which their lives in, in, the, in their chosen professions can be enhanced and they can enhance uh, the, the quality of the service at BAMSI. And I have today uh, three fantastic examples of that. And we're going to talk a little bit about, well, what did that mean? What was that process like? 
from start to finish. I'm always interested when uh, about how people decide w what field that they want to go into, and I want to talk about that a little bit uh, because oftentimes people try two or different two or three different things before they settle on uh, on a, a career in human services, uh, and uh, and oftentimes it's an experience that people have that makes them think I want to be part of something that is bigger than me. I want to be uh, in a field that has a calling, that has something other than coming to work. So the raw materials are there. We have the raw materials of people, but then how do we encourage and how do we uh, shepherd those folks through a, through a career? This country is a, is a harsh country in many ways. Uh, there isn't any free ride in terms of education. and So the investment that you as individuals, that we inv as individuals make in our own career is an expensive one. Uh, and I, our, our feeling here at BAMSI is let's make sure that we reward people for that uh, because we know that we have many, many diamonds in the workforce that we need to create a, a career path for. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to begin by asking our panelists just to introduce themselves a little bit and say um, where they work. And can we start with that question? What drew you to uh, the field of human services? So, uh, Rachel, maybe we could start with you. Sure. Um, so, yeah. Hi, I'm Rachel Capella. I'm currently the benefits specialist in human resources. Um, Honestly, I kind of ended up here by accident because this was the only place I could intern while I was in graduate school, and that's how I ended up in human services. <laughs> that is not by accident. <laughs> I, mean, I, I want to get back to that, but that, that totally is not by accident, and it's part of what we're talking about today, so thank you. All right. Okay. I'm Janie Ruiz. Um, I started my journey wanting to be a CIA agent. So I was um, <laughs> criminal justice, and then I did law enforcement, and I was a correctional officer. Then I realized that I cannot wear military boots for the life of me. <laughs> so I said, maybe it's time to work with adolescents and children. And I found that that's my own little niche, and that made me feel better about myself instead of wearing <laughs> there is so much to unpack there, <laughs> and I'm looking forward to doing that. But Charles, hi, I'm Charles. Um, I work at Whitman Counseling as a clinician and clinical supervisor. And I got into the mental health field um, knowing that that was my calling early on in high school. Um, just having this sensitivity to people's emotions and caring for others. So, like, I had a lot of friends who would, um, you know, talk to me about their problems, and I would listen, try to help out. Um, and I always had this fascination with psychology. And I decided um, at my high school they were offering a general course on psychology. And so I figured, you know, let me try it out, see how I like it. And my teacher was, was amazing. I fell in love with it, with the course, with the studies. And I decided, like, really, really quickly that I wanted to go to college um, and just study psychology and, and work in, in, as a mental health counselor, as a psychologist. So um, that's how my journey started um, early on in high school, and here I am now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a, that's, a, that's a very typical story, I think, of how you get 
sort of the bug, if you like, of of caring and, and giving back and, and, and beginning to feel that there's it's more than a job. And I think that really is what we're trying to draw out today, that, that it isn't about uh, a, a, a Saturday night shift. It, of course it is, but, but there's so much more to what Bamsey has to offer. And just, um, it was funny actually, because when I... Um, Jenny and I was uh, also uh, doing an internship in probation uh, in the UK before I came here. And I, I said to my mentor, my uh, supervisor, I said, well, why did you get into, you know, social work? And he said, well, really, it was because I didn't want to wear a tie. But I think there was more to it than that. Uh, and, and here I am wearing a tie after being a social worker for a long time. But um, there are all sorts of reasons why people come into the work. And there are all sorts of reasons why people get hooked on it. And that, and, but what I want to have a discussion about is how can BAMSI uh, do a better job? Uh, and I, I think we're doing a, a good job, and you are certainly living examples of how uh, you were attracted to and stayed at the organization. But I just want you to think about what would and, – and, you know, we – most people in their careers have a number of different employers. That's the way it is nowadays. But what are the things that might persuade you in the long run to stay here as well? So maybe we can start with, with, with Rachel because you said something really interesting that I just want to unpack a little bit. You said it was the only place that would allow you to do an internship while you were working. Is mm -hmm. that right? Yes. That's kind of important. Mm -hmm. So I just want to talk about flexibility for a minute and, and see what your, your feelings are about that. An organization, when an organization invests in human beings, we cannot be rigid about people's lives. You know, there are, there are lives that we all have outside of, you know, coming to work. And the ability to fit some of those uh, external activities to work into your routine is really important. Um, Tell me a little bit about how that felt. Was that was that a feeling like this is somewhere that I this is somewhere that is prepared to invest in me. I'm prepared to to stay and mm -hmm. see what happens. And then just talk a little bit, if you can, about how that turned out in terms of the the, the pathway of your career. Okay. <laughs> um, so yeah, I originally started as an intern. Um, I was working full-time and doing graduate school part-time. So I would usually come in like one day a week, but every now and then I would have to like flex my days. They'd let me switch days. They'd let me do part-time. Um, and then after about five or six months or so, they started having me come in more. So I'd work, you know, here in the morning and go to my other job at night. Um, they kind of allowed me to like pick and choose my schedule, which was great because they knew I was working in an another full-time job. Um, Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, and do you think do you think we've continued to do that? Other things, other other things that we can do. I'm going to uh, yeah. expand that a little bit uh, uh, to others. But are there other things that we can do? And you're in a very <coughs> unique spot, actually. You, you know, working in um, in in HR, mm -hmm. uh, you see a lot of what goes on. And sometimes I've got to say, we hear some feedback about the process is too long for people to apply. I hear that a lot. Yep. Um, and other other things that we can do to make people feel that we are interested um, in investing in them and staying at Bamsey. Yeah, um, I definitely agree. Like some of our processes are way too long. We need to streamline those. We need to make it easier for potential new hires. We need to make it easier for current employees. 
Um, I think we need to start moving to a lot more electronic things, like a lot more electronic enrollment forms, that kind of stuff. Um, I think right now it's just it's a long, drawn-out process for a lot of things, and it really turns a lot of people away. Yeah. Yeah, and when we're competing with people, mm-hmm. other organizations who tell me that they can complete an application online in about three to four minutes, and yep. we're looking at a longer period than that, it's something we really have to look at. So let me turn to um, to Charles uh, and Jadine and ask them about that, because you're out there, you're at the, C- the CSA and at Whitman. Um, how connected do you feel to Bamsey? Do you feel that Bamsey is looking out for you? Do you feel as if, um, and I won't, uh, make you wear uh, army boots or anything, but but do you feel as if um, if this is an organization that recognizes the work that people do out there, uh, and if you like cherishes the workforce that we have? Uh, yes, that's why I'm here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but in all seriousness, I I started here at the CSA um, in March, so that was. That was a huge change for me because I work from northeast of Massachusetts and then moved to the South Shore. And there's a lot of changes with culture and everything. And I was trying to just acclimate myself because it's such a different kind of population. And when I started getting to know my teammates, I felt extremely welcomed and it's really warm. And I'm just happy to constantly go to work and all my teammates, my mentor, Michelle, and my cub mate, because we're in a pod, because we're only allowed two people. That's right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Miss Ruth would, so those are the people who are extremely supportive of me and Miss Allison. So like, just having those around you always looking out, I, I really like when you ask me the part where, how Bamsey cherished their employees because they really do and I feel it so I started smiling when you were asking that question because I felt it yeah well you know all of what we do as a human service agency is about human interaction and uh, and how we care for people and if we're not caring for ourselves um, then we can't do our work in an optimal way so it's good to hear that I'm also aware that that isn't true necessarily everywhere and this is a big tent here at Bamsey and we need to we need to have conversations about what works and what doesn't but I will say that the number one reason why people leave organizations is not necessarily about pay it is sometimes it's a it's their relationship with their direct supervisor Um, and we have to invest in those people that supervise as well so that we have an optimal environment for people you know to want to stay yes that's actually the number one reason why people stay. It's about positive reinforcement, and then pay is the second reason. Yeah, absolutely. Charles, yeah, you, I, I believe that there's a supervisory relationship <laughs> between the two of you, right? Which yes. is, I, I want to sort of, um, I want to talk about that a little bit as well. But, but can you answer the same question in terms of the? I like the word cherish. Just came to me. Well. For me, um, when I started my my career at Bamsey um, in 2010, uh, no, oh man, <laughs> it just seems like a blur. Um, when I started here, I I just graduated from grad school, and so this was my first job as a clinician. Um, 
and you know right from the interview with um with the clinical director at the time elaine thomas mm -hmm. um i felt i felt really welcomed and encouraged by her presence and the opportunity to to grow there and to be groomed um she spoke about my supervisor who i would you know be working with for for my time at uh, Whitman Counseling, and he she spoke she spoke highly of him, and and we both have an interest working with children and adolescents, so like we had that connection. So just going into it, I felt I felt like like it was a good fit, it was a good spot to start. Um, and then when I went met with my supervisor Richard, um, he became my mentor. He became um a really good support for me and over the years um as we were working he he one day just during supervision i don't know how the conversation came up but he was like you know charles one day you're going to be a supervisor and i was like what <laughs> <laughs> like in my mind I'm like nah that's not that's not for me i i never saw myself in a position of having leadership or having that greater responsibility i was like you know i just want to focus on doing my work um uh, focusing on helping the people that i serve um but he planted the seeds at that point and so after some time passed he he became sick and eventually he he passed away mm -hmm. um in 2017 um and so during that time the clinic was um you know, trying to fill in his shoes and they already had been thinking about me to, to step in and they spoke to me about it and I just felt like, you know, that was the opportunity and to just take it and see where it takes me. And I believed in, in Richard, <laughs> he believed in me. So I was like, you know what, if I have his blessing, then <laughs> I'm good to go. Uh, so I took that leap and, um, like I said, I never imagined myself being in this position, but here I am, and I give thanks to to Richard. Um, and so that's that's you know what it is is like that belief, um, that support that I received from Richard, my supervisor, to um, to just grow even when I didn't see that potential. Yeah, I'm sorry for your loss. That's a you know obviously an incredibly important relationship. Um, and you know I I think of a almost like a some of Richard being in the work that you're doing, you know, in terms mm. of how you've taken him as a mentor and passed that on, which is what I want to get to next, because I think a big part of what we do is um, is sort of planting the seeds for the next uh, group of folks that come along um, and being a mentor and being somebody who can mirror the kindness um, and and the knowledge that you have so um, what made you want to supervise interns? Well. Be careful now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I think back to my, my education experience and being in a position where I was a student and an intern and having to, to, to receive guidance and to receive support and, and thinking back to my supervisors at my previous internships and and um supervisors at the practicum like i really felt 
like they were there to help me to grow and to develop. And I saw how important that was for me. And I also heard stories of other students who didn't have good experiences with their, you know, supervisors. So I just felt like, I just felt like that's important to me to, to be able to, to offer that. And when, when Lee, my clinical director mentioned the idea, I was, I was very open to it. Just thinking about like my past experience and what I've heard from other people. Like I wanted to, to offer, you know, what I can do to help out. Um, and so I took that opportunity. I, I started working with my first intern and it turned out really, really well. <laughs> Yeah, I think some of the memories that I have of when I was a student, I, I remember my mentors and, you know, it was more than a couple of years ago, I'm here to tell you, uh, but the but the kind of influence that those people had on me made me want to do the same. And I'm wondering if that's how you see your future in terms of uh, a career and the and the ability to give back. Yes, I definitely see myself as being a mentor. So I would like to thank and I'm really grateful for all the men- mentors that I've had because since undergrad I've had two mentors and I still keep in touch with them and then I grew with my probation and parole uh, mentor so we still keep in contact and then like from every single workplace that I've had I end up like sticking with someone that exude that leadership as well as the guidance and I think that's also what I would like to give for the future generations because you know sometimes when people have a bad experience with their mentor then they just kind of give up and for me I think I want to make that difference that every everyone's different and maybe you should give them a chance yeah mm-hmm. yeah I think that's absolutely right and again you know Rachel I'm going to go back to you from an HR perspective again it is the it's the relationships that you make and you know one of the things that we have a problem with here at BAMS is that we lose people very early on I don't think it's that unusual for an organization like ours who does such difficult work for people to think this isn't for me and in some ways it's a good thing that uh, that they realize that early uh, rather than later but there's a great deal of expense and effort that goes into hiring people and when they leave between three and six months it's like there's got to be something with wrong with how we're how we're selecting people, how we're orienting people, and how we're letting them know exactly what this work is. But what the interesting thing is, if people, if we get folks um, and they stay, they tend to stay a long time, and that's an interesting perspective for me. Um, do you is that something that you see in HR that you know that there's a lot of churn in the early in the early days, and then people tend to stay when they get here? Yes, definitely. Yeah. Yep. What do you think we can do about that? Um, I think we're already starting to do some things about that, like the leadership program. I think that's a great program that we started. Can you say something about that? Um, I haven't actually taken it yet, but uh, I've heard great things about it. Um, I think that's just a good way to get people to feel like they're really involved, like they're engaged with BMZ. Uh, It's a good way to help people, you know, become those good mentors um, and become good supervisors and hopefully help their staff and yeah, it's called the New and Emerging Leaders, yes. uh, and it's a cohort of people every year who are interested, and I think who Bamsey sees as uh, the next um, the next version of leaders. 
Uh, and I think it's a great thing. I, it, it would be great if we could expand it a little bit more because we do have, you know, 2,000 uh, folks here, but and obviously not everybody can do that. But the idea of creating that pathway for people and giving people – because a lot of the skills that we have as frontline clinicians and, uh, and at the CSA don't necessarily translate into leadership, right? You can be a wonderful clinician – but you're not innately a wonderful supervisor. You have to learn those skills, right? I, and, it, and it is up to the organization to allow people to learn those things rather than throwing them in the deep end saying, well, you're a good clinician, so I'm sure you'll be a good supervisor. It doesn't necessarily translate. And I think, I think that's what we're trying to do, right? How do you give some of those building blocks and some of those skill sets? I once said this, I remember when I was working with somebody, and I said, when we terminate people from our organization, for whatever reason, it's a failure of the organization. And if we're going to take that kind of action, we better be sure that we've done everything that we can to allow somebody to be successful. And that's a big responsibility for an organization like BAMSI. And I do think that our training, uh, professional development and training department are awesome at that. I think they've done awesome work in putting stuff online during the COVID crisis. Um, but there's always room for more. There's always more that we can do. Um, and, you know, I just wanted to throw that out to, to J.D. and Charles. You know, what do you see and what, do you, what are some of the worries that you have about those folks who, who come and they don't stay? And, and are there things that we can do to improve the length of, stay, of time people stay at the beginning? Because we know that the longer they stay, the longer we have them. Well, I know at least looking at, looking at it from the perspective of Whitman Counseling as a fee-for-service model in terms of um, – um, you know, reimbursing for the services we mm -hmm. provide. Um, for for those who work under that model, it can be difficult when when you have uh, when you're first starting, like to build a caseload. That can be a challenge. Is like that initial investment of time mm -hmm. doesn't always equate to like making making enough money that you're looking to make. Um, so I know finances could be. Um, you know, one of the biggest uh, considerations. Mm -hmm. So, like, even if you, you know, develop a, a caseload, then you run into the obstacle of, like, no-shows, mm -hmm. um, cancellations. And so that could be, that could be a huge obstacle as well. But, um, you know, aside from, like, the finances, um and then the other thing too is like the benefits in that model. Um, yeah. We don't receive benefits, yeah. Yeah. so you know clinicians might see other opportunities where there's a salaried position. Yeah. They have a consistent pay, they have benefits, and and that just seems like a better option. So mm -hmm. I think I think that's, that's yeah, a big point. And maybe it's maybe it's flexibility in that because some people do want the flexibility of you know, working like right, that, but right. but to offer different models, I think, is mm -hmm. something that we should look at. Mm -hmm. Janine, what do you, what do you, I think we're about to wrap up now, but you know, what what are your thoughts about that? Do you see people coming and going within two or three months, and what can we do to improve that? Well, when I started in March of this year, I didn't really see anybody 
coming and going until recently. But one of the things that Charles definitely touched upon was the financial or the pay aspect. So now I want to piggyback about the piece of positive reinforcement. I think BAMSI is already doing a wonderful job, but it has to be enforced more that you're expressing that you matter, that you're a part of our organization. And also one of the biggest things is constantly thing that we discuss is burnout like self-care and we're trying to discuss that with all our clients and families however we're not really walking what we're preaching unfortunately like for me I actually just got um, an earful because I've been working like non-stop and they just want me to make sure that I pause and yeah. stop stretching myself too thin yeah well you're absolutely right I mean we we have to get the work-life balance. We started off talking about work-life balance, and, we sh- and it's a good place to finish because if we're not taking care of our workforce, then we want, we're not going to succeed. So that is, that's really good feedback to have. And the self-care thing is even more important, I think, in these COVID days as well. And again, people at BAMSI have done such an incredible job um, riding this wave, and, and we've learned so much from that, um, and we're forever grateful for the efforts that people have put in not just with COVID, but all along. And I really am grateful for you two agreeing to be on this panel because I think I've learned an awful lot uh, in in the past uh, 30 minutes or so. And I hope everybody that listens does. And I hope that we can uh, keep this conversation going. So thank you so much for being involved today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.